0: Oh, what a week it's been in tennis. Not much has happened, but we just still feel as though the year's gone, gone probably about three, four times over um, in the space of about five months. It's been an unbelievable start to 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic continues to hit the ATP and WTA with more suspensions. We're going to get through that and plenty more. A couple of really special guests on the show, but none more special than this man that joins me on the other line on Zoom. It's Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you going?
1: Very, very good, Val. Uh, Good to be back. And we do have a big show lined up, don't we? Um, And not much news, but luckily we do have those two big guests, which take up most of the show,
0: but we're excited. They do. And uh, yeah, I don't even think I introduced myself. So yeah, Val Febbo here with you. And (laughs) and, uh, I introduce you before I introduce myself. So this show has gotten off to an absolutely wonderful start, but... um... To a fire. Um, I thought the intro was okay, and I'm like, I've forgotten something here. And then, um, yeah, that's what I forgot. But um, yeah, introduce you, and that's all that matters. But um, yeah, no, we do have some great guests on the show. It's uh, Ben Rothenberg and uh, Brett Phillips. So BP, obviously a wonderful friend of the show, was our very first guest on uh, on Breakpoint, and Ben Rothenberg, arguably one of the biggest tennis journalists in the world. So great to have his opinions on current events, and we'll bring you those chats very, very shortly. But before we do get into those, Joel, more suspensions on the ATP and WTA, pushing things back into or after July now, which means more tournaments get cancelled, which means well, it spells danger for the American hard court swing uh, towards the US mm. Open. So it's not good. The women's event in Canada has already been cancelled. Um, I think it's only a matter of time before the men's does as well.
1: Yeah, look, I, I think so, and. Um... You know, I mean, we look at some of the tournaments that uh, have been cancelled now, um, in addition to the ones that have already been cancelled, and it really just adds another layer of complexity to, um, you know, the, the, the grand slams that want to that want to try and play. So the French Open and the US Open um, are still clinging on to that hope. But, um, you know, the suspending and I, I guess the intention is to postpone the, the lead-up tournaments to those events is going to make things... Very, very difficult as, as well. Um, and, you know, we've said numerous times, and I'm sure we'll say it again many more times during this show as well, Val, that, um, you know, we, we tennis isn't a sport where you can just postpone things. It's just such a clustered calendar. Um, it, it, it almost just can't be done. So, um, you know, I, I think um, the lead-up tournaments being suspended really is... Um, is another nail in the coffin for the, the two slams that are that are trying to push through, which is the, the French and the US. I you know I, I just I can't see it happening. Um, we've got so many events that are cancelled now, and and when you add that to the fact that um, you know obviously there's still restrictions on on travel. We know that Europe is going to be uh, loosened in in some countries very shortly, but even then you still have to wonder if if a player or whoever is going to travel to Europe and they get there. Um, you would assume they're going to have to quarantine or, or something, and that's going to be a what a one-two week period where they have to do that. So um, you know, it's just it's just a, an absolute mess. Um, it's no one's fault, but it is a mess, and you know, unfortunately, um, it's just it's looking pretty bleak for uh, for international tennis and for the slams.
0: I think we know who Donald Trump blames for all of this, and uh, with that with that soundbite that's so. been circulating um, throughout <laughs> the last few weeks, the uh, older China. Um, soundbite so the amount of times I've played that has been ridiculous but um no you're right it's it is nobody's fault and there's nothing that we can really do 27 ATP tournaments have been uh, cancelled this year and say uh, the women's have had 21 or 22 if you count um if you count the uh, Canada premier events so um really disappointing but unfortunately yeah you're right there's nothing we can do we can't really control what's happening here it's a global pandemic Mm. it's something that's Spreading like wildfire, and hopefully that we can contain it and get that vaccine really soon. But um, unfortunately, it just means we're going to have to bite our time. But Joel, do we just do we just bite the bullet for twenty twenty? Is that it? Can we? I I reckon, and we have this chat with BP and Ben Rothenberg as well. But I think I think we have to. I really think we have to. It's mm. there's nothing really. There's nothing else yeah. that we can do here. International travel has just come out. It's not going to be fully functional until 2023 and that that's alarming like we're still going to be able to fly out places but the sheer volume of flights isn't going to be the same as what it was before COVID so I think yeah we're in a position now where I reckon let's just bite the bullet let's just focus on some domestic tournaments and let's make 2021 one of the best tennis seasons in the history of tennis you know the the rebirth of the sport if you will but I think 2020 is—you you can put a line through it. It's not a domestic competition. It's not—it's not AFL. It's not NFL. It's not NBA. It's not—it's not soccer. Um, you know, we're relying heavily on international travel to make our sport go ahead, and I don't see it being conceivable in the next six months.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I think pretty much we're going to have to. Put a line through it. I mean, it's been it's been really three months that we've been in, in lockdown. That the tennis season has been in lockdown. And look, I can understand why the slams are trying to hang on the, the, the French and and the US and, and all the other tournaments that you know might be just sort of trying to tread water. Um, you know, obviously they they want to make their money, which is completely understandable. It's their biggest um, biggest cash injection, obviously. But um, you know, if, if they were to play, I, I just can't help but think. Obviously, we know the restrictions. We've spoken about the idnorsium, but further to that, the result of of that, even even if you find a way around them, if players do travel, if players do get to their destination, um, if they do have to quarantine, whatever it is, it's going to be a compromised event anyway. Um, I, you know, I, it's not going to have the same the same integrity of, of the event. Unfortunately, um, we're going to have probably uh, players that aren't aren't fully fit. Um, your players that aren't prepared. It's just, it's not going to be an enjoyable event anyway. And, um, you know, obviously there'll be benefits uh, from, from broadcast because those events will be broadcast, but, um, and I'm sure people will watch it just because it's tennis and it's a grand slam and it's a big event, but I do, I do wonder for real rusted on tennis fans watching an event like that, if it becomes clear, which I'm sure it would, um, that a lot of players are under conditions. And, you know, this, this, this hierarchy that we have, Really, um, really becomes even more emphasised than it already is. Um, you know, I just I can't really see it being an enjoyable event at all. So, uh, I think I think the answer from here on in is, as, and you mentioned it, Evel, is is domestic events. We've, we've um, heard it being spoken about in down here in Australia, which we've we've spoken a lot about on, on our show, and we will continue to talk about with the state of origin idea. But um, also, the, the the British national championships have been put back on the agenda now this week as well. So. It really does seem like um, a lot of Western countries are really trying to uh, revive tennis or, or keep tennis on life support for the moment with these domestic events. And unfortunately I think it's almost the only way to go about it because um, players are pretty much stuck where they're based. They do need to get on court, but the reality is they can't travel. Um, So, um, you know, I think in a lot of these countries, there's certainly enough talent to, to really uh, sustain those events. And um, yeah, you know, in a way, it's 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 an opportunity for people to learn about the, the players they do have um, on their books in their countries. So, and certainly down here um, in Australia, we know about Diminar, we know about Curios, we know about Milman, Ashbardi, Sam Stoza. But you keep you keep digging down, and we had Mark Holmans last week. He had a, he had a win at the Australian Open this year. But if you ask the average person, do you know who Mark Almond is? They would say no. Um, and certainly not all the junior, all the junior talent that we have. It's a great opportunity for them, um, as has been suggested, to, to really get their names out there, get a bit of exposure, surround themselves with legends, with you know, um, with current players that are in the top one hundred, top one hundred and fifty, whatever it is. So, you know, there's there's some real positives there as well. Um, I think the, the big the big hurdle um, for all the associations is is going to be how do they how do they effectively monetize it, getting sponsorship behind it, getting broadcasters behind it. That's going to be a big thing, but there's certainly a lot of benefit for the players that that are involved. And I, I think really it's it's the only solution. I mean, um, the, the reality is international tennis can't go ahead at the moment. So domestic tennis really is the only solution um, and the only way really to get players um out of their out of their living rooms out of their, their home gym in the garage whatever it is and, and um, you know and back onto a court against some some adequate opposition
0: yeah I agree hundred percent and I think um, and we there's been news this week that the British national championships is going to be revitalized for the first time since 2002 because mm. it just doesn't seem like a, a, a grand slam or international tournament will go ahead so British national championships could be a thing which would be great hopefully that's played at Wimbledon, because it'd be good to see the grass courts actually being used in 2020. So, hopefully, that is a thing. But um, yeah, not sure at the moment. Um, I think that's that's pretty much the only little um, drips of news this week. There's there's one one little thing that one little thing that I wanted to Here we go. have a crack at. Here we go. Novak Djokovic's mother. Now, <laughs> please, that whole family, just stop talking. Stop talking. Federer does not have an ego. Andy Roddick said it during this week. He does not, Federer is not arrogant. It wouldn't be one of the 6,000 words that he used to describe Federer. So why is she calling him arrogant? Because she because Federer is a threat to her son being the GOAT. And uh, I'm just, I'm over it. I'm over it, Joel. The, the family just needs to stop talking because they keep digging themselves into a hole. Novak's done it. His wife has done it. His father's done it. His mother's done it. The the son's probably going to say something very, very soon that's going to rub people up the wrong way. So just an advice, if this gets to Belgrade or Monte Carlo or wherever they are, please stop talking. Just stop. Stop. It's getting ridiculous, and it's making me angry. And it's not because I love Roger Federer. It's because what you're saying is stupid. So just stop. Shall we get into our first guest, Joel?
1: We should. Let's leave that there,
0: I reckon. Well, Joel, our first special guest of the show today is, well, arguably the biggest tennis journalist on the planet. He's one of the biggest names in the world of uh, the print media uh, format, and uh, he's the host of No Challenges Remaining podcast and writes for the New York Times and many, many other outlets. His name is Ben Rothenberg. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I
2: so rarely get biggest on the planet type introductions, Val. So it is a pleasure to be any, anywhere that will that will introduce me that way. It's a lot to live up to, but I'll I'll try to do my planet
0: proud. <laughs> I'm sure you will, mate. But um, just first things first, where um, uh, well you're you're over in um in Washington DC. How's everything going over there with um the COVID nineteen pandemic?
2: Yeah, I think relatively DC hasn't been the hardest hit city. I think that we're doing certainly much better than than New York is doing, uh, which is only about you know, 400 kilometers north of here. Uh, I'm not great at guessing kilometers, but I think that's roughly yeah. about how far it is. And, yeah, I mean, we're doing, you know, people are still pretty locked down. Everyone's wearing masks all around in public, and I'm staying indoors as much as I can. Um, I relocated from my pretty sort of urban apartment to my parents' less sort of densely populated house in the outskirts of the city. And uh, and so that's spent a little more space and a little more room. And uh, I have a new dog that I'm playing with. And so, all, you know, quality of life isn't too bad. It's obviously rough not really uh you know working not having his, as someone who writes about the sport when the sport stops most of the work stops with it but uh yeah just trying to take enjoy this sort of unexpected respite from the uh from the tennis tour which even as a on the journalist side can be a, can be a grind sometimes for sure
0: well yeah you mentioned um you mentioned the grind there and it, it'd be i guess it'd be it, it'd be nice not having to to travel constantly like you you sort of would do? Because I know that you come to the Australian Open almost every year and then you do Indian mm-hmm. Wells, Miami, and then you said just before that um, this would be the first time you're not in Europe for about eight or nine years. It must be kind of a bit of a relief not to have to go, but also bit, bittersweet at the same time.
2: Yeah, definitely bittersweet. I mean, obviously, I, would, I, I was planning on still going to Europe this year uh, and still doing other things as well. and I was packing for Indian Wells, Uh, Like pulling clothes out of the dryer when uh, when I got the email that that tournament was being canceled, so uh, pretty short, abrupt notice for everything to change pretty quickly in the sport. But at the same time, yeah, like those are business trips at the end of the day, and they do become a bit of a grind going to the same places every year. Uh, You know, they sort of lose the novelty or the exotic factor when you're going staying, you know, in the same neighborhood of a city for eight years in a row. Um, but I, I still will miss a lot of parts of it for sure, uh, including the earning a living part of it. But uh, but it's, uh, yeah, at the same time, it's, it's kind of nice to get a bit of a break from what can be a bit of monotony with the tour hitting, you know, going to the same place at the same time of year, every time, getting a bit of a break for that. And even if it was something, I, I'm pessimistic on this happening, but even if there is something like a October French Open, like that would at least be, a, I, I haven't been to Paris in that time of year, before so that'd be kind of interesting
0: yeah
3: you
2: know and that would sort of be a different look sort of tour if we do get a modified tour schedule that has media attending it um there's a lot of ifs built in that i'm not confident will all come together but uh yeah it'll, it could be it, it's not it's not all bad having a, a bit of a shake-up
1: what's um, that's a good segue ben i wanted to ask you what's your sort of general thoughts on uh all these proposed postponements i mean we've really been talking about it pretty much every week and how we think that that tennis is probably not really uh, a sport that uh, postponements really work just because of the built up nature of of the calendar. So, I mean, what's, what's your sort of take on it, on it generally?
2: I mean, generally in terms of when I think it's going to come back to normal, I, I, I've been pretty from pretty early on. I think even probably before Indian Wells would have been over, um, I was already saying I thought it was pretty unlikely to have tennis in 2020 just because of you know how long it's going to take to get a vaccine and if they are really concerned about spreading any form of the disease. And I think it's pretty tough without either amazing testing, some sort of very good cure or a vaccine to bring the tour back to what it was. I think tennis is a kind of nightmare sport for a pandemic where you have people from all corners of the world coming mm-hmm. together and mixing in various cities around the world, especially now, add in like travel restrictions. I don't know—not that I'm trying to travel anywhere, but I don't know that I could as an American travel freely around the world the way I'm used to being able to. I kind of doubt that I could. Uh, so, yeah, so that could all take a while. And then, yeah, in terms of rescheduling, like the schedule is so crowded. So um, the French have made a pretty unilateral move to to shift from May slash June to September slash October, and they uh, annoyed a lot of people. And how they did that without doing much consultation, and landing what was already occupied weeks of the calendar. I mean, like there's a you know labor cup people talking about, but there's also I think WTA Wuhan, which is like essentially a masters event equivalent on the women's tour. So for them just to sort of plop down in this occupied occupied space was very very aggressive. Um, I mean, I do think annoyed a lot of people. So I don't, I don't think that's going to work. I'd be surprised if that works, or maybe something very different. And this can get to the Australian Open too. Like it's possible that there can be possibility of holding some event at Roland Garros on those dates but it wouldn't be able to be a full grand slam like we know like let's skip ahead to australia which i think it's the more interesting sort of scenario like i could see there being a situation where australia is doing pretty well um but there is still travel restrictions and people wouldn't be able to come from the four corners of the, the globe that like they normally would so let's say you have a situation where there is a tournament in melbourne in the in late january but let's say travel restrictions just make something up here you couldn't have north americans or south americans attending it like would that still be a grand slam like eh you know probably not i think under a lot of people's perspective it'd be more of a closed tournament but if you can hold tennis there sure hold tennis i think people still enjoy it even in an extreme sort of travel example if it is like a domestic australian tournament let's say it's only for australian players like a 32 player jar or something i think that would be a lot of fun I think I think people would love to see a sort of Australian Championships final between like Demon and Kurios. I think that would be a lot of fun for people to watch that or Demon R Millman. Whoever made it through that draw, I think you could have a meaningful sort of event that is fun and entertaining for people. It's not that isn't what we expected or knew before. But I think there are sort of I think there are modifications that can happen that could be uh, a lot of fun for a lot of people. And I know even like I know I'm getting on a lot of tangents here. Sorry, so apologies for disrupting yeah. whatever outline you may have for this. But I know, I, I know, <laughs> like, uh, I know that there was talk about doing like a British national championships, uh, domestic, uh, just people on that island when they when this summer for when Wimbledon would have been. And I think that's great. Like, we haven't had those kind of events before That's Something tennis has been missing It's like domestic championships, like finding out who is the best Australian player or the best British player. Like, we don't have that in tennis in a real way that most individual sports and other sports would be able to pull off and tennis calendars too crowded to have that. So if this does make some space for some, some smaller scale, but still interesting events that have, especially have sort of a reason behind them, like finding a domestic champion, I think that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. And like even, even here in Australia, I'm not sure if, if uh, you've, you've seen previously then, but John Millman was sort of a bit of a brainchild behind this idea. He was really talking about um, kind of like a state of origin type concept and uh, we have that in, in other sports down here, obviously. But um, he was sort of putting forward this idea about um, state of origin for Australia in, in tennis. And you mentioned the, the British National Championships um, as well in, in the UK. And, um, yeah, it really does seem that um, with all these travel restrictions that um, sort of these revamped kind of domestic events might be the way forward. And I guess in a kind of roundabout way, like it, it, it almost seems like in some respects it could almost be a good thing for tennis because you kind of get to know the kind of the smaller names if you like of of your nation's um you know tennis talent pool yeah absolutely i think it could be a positive thing for a lot of places even in
2: the u.s which i think the u.s is in rough shape obviously compared to this i don't know that we would have a domestic championships in a meaningful way because i think we would have even a lot of within the country travel restrictions for a while potentially and obviously, we're a bigger country population wise than Australia by a fair while. But, you know, there's lots of players who are like, um, trying to think who it would be like, to use an example, like Tim Smichak, who was like ranked, I don't know, 150, was probably like one of the best men's players from the upper Midwest of the US for a while. And he never sort of got any sort of recognition of being sort of king of that <laughs> region of the country, which has, you know, tens of millions of people in it and he was not a spectacular player on the world scale by ATP ranking measures but still it'd be cool to kind of have him be able to sort of fly the flag for his his home region and do some sort of domestic thing uh yeah we'll see I, to me that to me that's a little more meaningful than like these things that have been popping up so far where it's like hey here's four players who happen to be sort of training in the same uh resort area of florida you know like they had this one with like opelka and her catch yeah. tommy paul and somebody else and I don't remember the fourth one. Was, I think it but. was Mia
0: Mia um Kechmanovic oh, Kechmanovic, from, but, yeah. Okay,
2: yeah. So that's like that's nice that those are all players, but there's not a real obvious reason why those four guys would be together, except for they have to, except for they happen to, you know, own homes in a, in a similar sort of region of a of a tennis hotbed. And the same thing with whatever's going to go on in Europe with uh, you know, there's events happening at, at Mortagalu's Academy and things like that. It's going to be that's going to be a pretty strange melange of players who show up there. But I think and that so that's me for me hard to get excited about. But when you give really clear parameters, like Australian national championships, mm-hmm. British national championships, something that makes it like these could be, really be you know, real tournaments. Like I think even Belarus was playing. I saw some of the top Belarusian women like Sabalenka and Saznavich were playing against each other on some stream a few weeks ago like that. Yeah. If there's a domestic Belarus league, like great. I can understand. I think people can understand. Yeah. sort of stakes of that and i think stakes are very clear for tennis uh when they do that i think stakes is what i'm going to be looking for most when as sports resumes because you guys know i mean like people it's hard to get people at least who are real fans of the sport too excited about exhibitions and so i think as much as you can try to find authentic stakes even if it is on a very small scale like for john millman who's the best player from queensland at the queensland championships like i'd watch that sure
0: yeah, well, well, I think we, we did like a social thing, putting all these teams together for the state of origin. And there's, there's some really strong teams in, in terms of Australia, like Australian states, but there's also some really weak teams. But it could be really fun to see. Like, it just gives, like, if you put juniors and stuff involved, like, you know, they they can get some exposure as well, get a little bit of money from Tennis Australia or any of the governing bodies. And, you know, that can bankroll them as well for future years. So it's not a bad idea yeah. to try and get some tennis going. That You know, <laughs> if there's money there, do it. But... Um, yeah, what do you think about possibly like doing yeah. kind of a tennis All Star weekend over in America, kind of like what they do in the NBA?
2: Explain that idea more to me. What, what are you envisioning there? So,
0: what could you play like sort of west and east, and get the two conferences together and see <laughs> and see how would like how the players would go, or would is that is that just too difficult? Is there too many?
2: It depends who you get to buy into it. I mean. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. is obviously a pretty diverse uh, group of players and, a lot, and spread out around the country, yeah. obviously, and, and we'll see what travel is. I think you can still fly domestic in the U.S., but not a lot of people are doing it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like if you could get, you know, like the Williams sisters and all the top players involved in something that was domestic – great although once you get everybody involved then because the u.s again is a, it's a lot has more players in a bigger country i think the u.s would be one of the, for the last ones i would look to for yeah. this honestly because i think that we once the u.s is up and running i think it's easier to get some sort of like the tour thing going yeah and then you know like the tours is also just like you have know, a lot of real questions about how should that work logistically once the tour gets going if it does get going like this year let's say like um like let's say the fall european indoor schedule right for the men like normally it would go, um, like Antwerp, Basel, and slash Vienna, and mm-hmm. the Paris Bear Sea. Yeah. But like, why not have all three of those tournaments happen in one venue, where they could like make one venue really, you know, trick it out to be as virus-proof as possible with all the right sanitation, all the distancing stuff, whatever. And so, and they not have players have to change country every. Weak every time they lose, which I think would be a lot of logistical headaches. Um, so I think you could find something like that where you could have, you know, all three of those tournaments could be held in Basel, let's say, mm. and have Basel just be like the nexus of in uh, separate draws if you need to or, or what. But I don't know. Then, I think there's a lot of different things that would be sort of half steps that could be pretty useful uh, on the way to getting the tour back to where it was. Because I just I just think that you really to get the tour back to full full strength as it was before, you do need a vaccine. And that's still quite a ways off.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, just quick, moving away from this, tell us about your, the relationship with, with Nick Kyrgios. Um, we know there was a bit of a bit of Twitter banter back probably four or five years ago. And then you did the No yeah. Challenges Remaining podcast with him last year. And that was one of the, the best interviews I've ever heard with a player. It was awesome. It was raw. It oh, was honest. You. And um, the way you guys chatted was really good. And yeah, you got a lot out of him. And t- tell us about how that came about and how you actually got him to do media. because doesn't
2: do much of it no uh, definitely does not too do much of it uh this is actually the one week anniversary of that or one sorry one year anniversary of that interview uh <laughs> rome uh 2019 so I, was, I, was, I thought about i don't know if i actually did i thought about tweeting hey nick you know it's the uh one year anniversary of this of our most I- to episode if you want to do it again and then and then he actually just went on uh, uh andy murray's instagram live pretty pretty sloshed as we yeah. would say here and uh Having his own there. still had some good moments, but it was a little felt bad for Andy. He did not realize what he was signing up for there.
0: Yeah, Andy um, looked so confused that whole interview. He,
2: Andy just looked nervous, yeah. so understandably <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so Nick and I, I mean, Nick, you know, um Nick and I probably first, I remember when I first sort of would have run, you know, Nick and I first all get along. With fine and well now i'll start with obviously hopefully people can tell and really kind of always did most part i think he first got sort of publicly upset with me uh in 2016 um in when there was a usa versus australia davis cup tie uh i believe it was on grass in sydney i want to say it was like a uh and in march of 2016 so i guess maybe a quarterfinal maybe a first round i forget and it was the one where Curious was not playing and, and Tomek was sort of ripping uh, him, saying he was you know back in Canberra chucking a sickie or whatever on court and I was picked up by the mics and stuff. And I, and I tweeted something. I'd written a, a column for Fox Sports Australia saying how... Because I was so sure that Leighton was going to sub himself in and play the fifth rubber. And Leighton had already retired and was like been outside the top 100 for quite a few years. And so I wrote something for them saying like Leighton should not play this rubber. He's, you know, there's other better choices for Australia. And just basically sort of You know, bluntly pointing out how relatively mediocre on tour Layton's actual results have been for the last while, especially in best of five matches. And Nick sort of sprung to Layton's defense and called me a peanut. Um, And so that was sort of the first, that was the first sort of volley in this exchange. Um, And then, you know, I was sort of amused by that largely. And then I sort of realized the Australian media machine. Anytime Nick says anything, it becomes a massive store on every outlet down there. Uh, so that was my first, that's how I got to be so globe famous, really, in Australia, was <laughs> through these moments. Mm-hmm. So um, for better or worse, almost entirely for worse. And yes, yeah, so, I mean, so Nick, Nick and I just sort of continued that sort of, or mostly just Nick. I really wasn't participating in much of it at all. But Nick would continually sort of just banter, or take shots at me on Twitter. Um, but we would always gotten along pretty well in person. And I think we both are pretty irreverent people. And so he could see that in me and see that I was not too beholden to sort of the, you know, um, the pretty lockstep sort of constant praise and, uh, fawning at people in the sport. And that's certainly not Nick is too. He's not uh, someone who ever sort of pays due deference to anybody. He's very undeferential. And so I think he recognized that in me. And so we sort of went back and forth a while. And then, yeah, I guess 2019, we were talking, uh, or 2018, yeah, sort of our, biggest one at the US 7 we're just sort of going back core on twitter just sort of having last which again that's not i should i should be above the fray i should be above engaging in those things and uh and it, i think i was, I was actually homesick that day from the tournament so i was just sort of a little groggy and was not feeling as filtered as i probably should be um just kind of got closer to smack talk than i normally should ever with the player <laughs> anyway uh, so okay. so nick and i got um when i was saying you know oh if you change your mind let me know because you're going to be free next week when he was playing federer third round um so that was not great. So, I regret doing that. But uh, I was also correct. And uh, anyway, so Nick and I had talked about doing a podcast in Miami. And then he had like some big blow up in his loss. I think he lost to George, maybe Miami last year. And he was just like not in the mood at all. But then I saw him in Rome last year, and we sort of I sort of saw him in the player lounge. Before I was like, hey, if you still want to do that, let me know. So it was a request that me just I did it with him directly. I didn't go through a normal sort of app interview request process. It was just sort of us meeting up and uh, chatting. In the player lounge and he was up for it and He was like yeah i'll text you i'll see how i'm feeling after my match he played Nebedev negative first so i thought it was a real shot he could lose that match um but he beats Nebedev in three and he texted me like yeah hey let's do this and so i went over and did it and he was in a you know, i had a very rough sort of outline of things i wanted to ask him but he was just so clearly game and how he can be he can be very very open and very uh Un, unfiltered when he wants yeah. to be and he was in that kind of mood so any sort of credit for how open he was really 99 percent of that goes to him and just be willing to roll with it in a way that you so so rarely get athletes being that unguarded for a reason obviously because look at like you know look at what a tsunami it caused in the little pond that is tennis you know when he starts throwing in boulders like that at <laughs> the top guys but uh but yeah he's uh he was game and he was a lot of fun. And I, I think I was able to sort of keep it rolling for a while in there. And you know, hopefully someday he said at the end, you know, we can do it again someday. So hopefully we can. And certainly there's lots
1: more things I would love to love to talk to him about. Yeah. It's great when he's so unfiltered in that public sort of sphere. And um, I think then that he was a real victim of what's happened in 2020, because certainly in the ATP cup and, and also the Australian open, I thought he was really impressive, both the way he was playing, but also... Um, certainly, um, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about his, his on-court antics, um, and he's obviously an enigma as well. But um, we were sort of talking about whether we thought that Nick had turned a corner in that respect. And I sort of thought he had, but my sort of take on it was that we needed to probably see what he was going to be like. Um, overseas, when the, when he didn't have the backing of, of the crowd pretty much universally, and see how he coped with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, do you, do you think yeah. that he, he's sort of in that position where he really could have, we could have almost seen this huge amount of untapped potential that Nikirios has?
2: You never know. I mean, it can all change quickly. And you're right that he definitely is almost always at his best behavior and on his best game in Australia. It's just a more comfortable environment for him for sure. And he's somebody who also I think could probably win like a domestic championship kind of situation because he is so good in Australia Um, and certainly much more disciplined and much everything's just a lot smoother in his life on and off court. So yes, I think that maybe, although his last tournament was Acapulco and I kind of remember him getting booed off the court there uh he had some sort of real injury it seemed like i think he retired and yeah. relatively he was actually pretty composed given and he was defending champion there and so i think he had a lot you know reason to sort of be a little bit on better behavior maybe than he would be at a normal tournament but uh yeah but it was it was kind of a rough tournament for him his last thing we saw i think was acapulco which feels like ages ago it feels like way more than uh-huh. way more than three months ago that acapulco happened um so yeah so I'm not sure. I mean, the upside is always big. I still think that he's, his uh, conditioning and his sort of lack of mental focus will always make it really tough for him to like win a slam. I think he can, uh, if there's a slam that's playing fast enough. And, you know, even look at like his match against Rafa in Australia this year, I think went four sets, right? And, and that was relatively um pretty small margins pretty close and he did he did well even i think he was playing a little bit hurt or it was really slow conditions it really was really slow conditions at night at night in melbourne so like things were kind of stacked against him and he still managed to make it more competitive than he probably should have on paper uh and it was the day kobe died which obviously had affected him a lot maybe i don't know if it inspired him or it was overall negative but uh yeah i i don't know i still you know the reason that we care about nick is that he's relevant that he's his upside is so big i mean that's you know Honestly, part of the reason people don't talk about Tomic like as much is because I don't think people think that Tomic has the same upside that Nick has. So people see Nick as, when he's at his best, he really is pretty spectacular. And winning two 500-level events last year is pretty huge. Um, you know. So I think people can believe, do believe that he can still be a relevant factor on tour. And how close or how far he is from achieving his potential at any given time, you never know. because things. Because also, I think he doesn't always react well to success. Like Washington, for example, he wins last year, and then he has a pretty rough loss in Canada, and then he has his meltdown in Cincinnati right after so you know he's it's, it's i think he's a little bit uh afraid of the success, success sometimes and, and has a bit of a self sabotage streak in there.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned the meltdown after success. A, a perfect example would have been winning Tokyo back in um, 2016 exactly. and then going off in Shanghai and um, yeah, getting suspended for the rest of the year. So um, you're right, he is an enigma. So hopefully we can see the best of him very soon because there is a lot of potential there. But before we do let you go, Ben, uh, we just want to ask a couple of quick fire questions. The best and worst places that you've traveled as a tennis journalist?
2: In terms of like the cities or the tournaments themselves? Oh, are cities, cities. Cities, okay. Um, hmm. my favorite city to travel to is Rome. I just love Italian food, and so that's what I was most missing about not being in Rome this past week. I, you know, I will, so I don't like all the like food wise, like certainly like Britain, I don't like, but so I will routinely shamelessly go to like a dinner in Italy and get like two main courses and just have both, and the waiters are always a little perplexed, but then they ultimately don't mind. They're pretty chill about it in the end. Um. And so in one, like, regular one year, the term that I go to a lot, they'll sort of make fun of me when I only order one. I'm feeling slow. Um, but anyway, so yeah, Rome, Rome is my favorite city to go to. It, it's a term that's sort of, that's, I think, the most sort of charisma and charm of any stop on tour. And I'm a big fan. of that tournament all. the marble and stuff and the crowd, the really good food and the night matches and sort of general chaos that is Italy disorganized completely, but still managing somehow to get things sort of done in the end. <laughs> Uh, so Rome, Rome is probably my favorite. Uh, so that's the one that I think is the one I'm going to miss most of these tournaments. I'm not getting to go to this year. And then dislike is tougher. Um, I got, I'll say I didn't love, um, I've only been there once. I did not love Singapore when I was there. I went there once for the WTA championships. Uh, and I just found it really, really humid and like not all that interesting, it was just a lot of shopping malls, mostly yeah. there. Um, there were some other areas that were specifically like nicer, like street vendor stuff. But it, the weather was really gross, and the culture wasn't all that apparent or interesting. It was sort of a lot of like British tinged. It was like it was like England, but oppressively humid, <laughs> which is just not a good thing. So, so uh, my my first thought in terms of least favorite city that I've been to is probably is probably Singapore. But I know a lot of people. There are like places I had. I only went once, and also it was also tough because it's a horrible time zone for work because it's a 12 hour difference from mm. from new york so um yeah so singapore, singapore is the first one that comes to mind there
0: yeah fair enough a lot of people don't like the humidity in it i've never been but apparently it does get bad but yeah the italian part you made good joel and i are both italian so um we also we agree with you italian food is absolutely fantastic so we cannot go wrong absolutely. there um ben thank you so much for joining us on the show today it's an absolute pleasure to have you on and uh, just quickly where can we find the no Challenges Remaining podcast?
2: Uh, yeah, just Google No Challenges Raining. Hopefully, it'll come up. Uh, no Challenges Raining on any podcast app of your choice or on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Appreciate no it. No worries. Have a good one, Ben, and um, we'll speak to you very soon.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, Val.
0: Thanks, Joel. Ben Rothenberg there. Joel, one of the best tennis journals in the world. Geez, he, he speaks so well, and um, it, it was an absolute pleasure to have his insights on the world of tennis, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. He, he spins a good yarn, Ben. But um, look, the reality is he is a big name in uh, in, in tennis media, and um, you know obviously writes for some very big publications, New York Times. But uh, also a, a great um, great pod that he has, no challenges remaining, and spoke about the uh, the interview that he did with uh, with Nick Kyrgios at length. And um, yeah, it was a, it was a great story, but also very uh, very interesting to to hear uh, some of his thoughts about what's going to happen in um, in the next few months. Um, In the tennis world, it's certainly good to get it from the perspective of someone who actually is overseas because our next guest, of course, Brett Phillips, um, is is based in our neck woods in Australia. So we really uh, look to ask him uh, what his thoughts were on how the domestic side of things, these proposed domestic events, would work back here in Australia.
0: Yep, and I'd love to hear about uh, how he was in Indian Wells and just landed after the tournament had been cancelled. So um, let's, let's move on to our second guest, shall we, Joel? Yep. And Joel, moving on to our second guest, and this man is one of the best friends of Breakpoint Podcast. He was, I think, the first guest that we ever had on the show, and um, he's he remained was. a good friend ever since. And uh, Brett Phillips, the host of the first serve and the most revered, I think, tennis media figure in Australia. He has to be now, surely. He's owning it. He's doing it all. He's doing absolutely everything. Rod Laver court announcing, ATP Cup court announcing. He, he's all over it. Brett, how are you going?
3: I'll tell you, who am I going to be uh, court announcing to next year imagine if there's no crowd they might even need a court announcer Bell I might be <laughs> like, uh, come on we're going to get we're going to get crowds at the tennis because it'd be quite weird to. although I tell you what I reckon um, what was there was right at the end of the Australian Open this year I think it might have been the juniors and they had to close the roof on that last Saturday it was rainy outside. I actually introduced the juniors on court for their finals. There was no one in the stadium, so oh, maybe no. that was a, a taste of what's to come.
0: Yeah, who knows? It's it's absolutely it's it's ridiculous. Well, how how are you going with it all? And um, how's everything going with the first serve? And how, how are you able to to push on with um with all of the COVID restrictions? You wouldn't be in the studio or anything for it, would you?
3: No, we've been doing the show remotely for, what, the last eight weeks, so myself here at home and Sam Groth either at home or is at his uh, uh, palatial uh, <laughs> beachside property uh, down on the uh, Mornington uh, Peninsula. I won't give the exact address away. I know you won't want to be stalking no. by everyone, but no, well, it's turned into a very different year, Val, uh, because I had a full year sort of planned out travelling-wise. As you know, I actually trekked to... Indian Wells found out when I landed in Los Angeles that Indian Wells had been cancelled. While I was in there, I think you were one of the first person to alert me. I had about yeah. 50 text messages, which are yeah. uh, actually coming through right now still. People tell me <laughs> it had been cancelled and then Miami got cancelled. So I've been doing a lot of uh, you know, getting refunds back and sorting all that out. I was actually booked to go to Budapest for the Fed Cup finals. Had to sort all that out with a common... I'd actually booked for the French Open, Uh, hadn't got to Wimbledon at that point in March, but yeah, I had a 4 year sort of plan, was going to be away for about 20 weeks and now I'm uh, in Melbourne, so it's not such a bad thing to be in uh, the greatest city in the world as we know, the sporty capital of the world, even though there's no sport on. Um, But yeah, look, we've decided to keep the show going because you know, really as we know, there's still plenty to talk about so many angles, you know, talking to the Aussie players, how they're going in isolation. It's been interesting with the, you know, obviously behind the scenes we know Tennis Australia has been conducting a performance review for, I reckon, a good 18 months now. And that sort of surfaced when I went to the Davis Cup just before Indian Wells in Adelaide where I had a chat to Craig Tiley where they hadn't released anything publicly at that stage and and now it's sort of all coming out what they're trying to do to create the best pathway to develop, you know, as many successful tennis players on the world stage. It's certainly not a straightforward process. So it's been interesting to delve into that and just to think, I think for all of us who love tennis and you guys are chatting about it on your show, we are, you know, now that tennis has actually got a chance to breathe because it never does. It's just going full scale week in, week out to a life fifty two weeks of the year effectively. It's now giving everyone a chance to sit and breathe and say, what can tennis do better? What you know, is, it, is, it, is the merger the best option? I don't know you guys have devoted well. you've written articles on it. Um, you know, do we have a better domestic scene set up here to give our Australian players a chance to actually make some money? Because the more you delve into all our players who have a ranking, it is such a tough sport to make it. And we chatted to Glenn Busby and Peter Della-Vadova, high-performance coaches, on our show last night. And, you know, it's it's tough when you're coming from Australia. You know, does the college path become more attractive now? I mean, we're later maturers. I mean, unless, you know, apart from the Popperin and Demonor and Barty, you know, the rest are developing later. So, I don't know. There's so many talking points. And while there's no tennis, we'll just we'll just keep chipping away at that and we'll see if we can solve the problems of the, the tennis world.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh... Certainly, plenty to discuss, VP. And you're right; we have spoken about it at length. And um, you know, one of the things that that uh, came up when we spoke to uh, to Ben earlier on the show was was domestic tennis and how we can sort of come out of of the pandemic. And we know all about the uh, state of origin um, suggestion from John Milman, which I think is a, is a really cool idea. And um, we, were, we were saying before how, in a kind of roundabout way, if that actually happens, it's it's kind of in some respects a blessing in disguise because. Um, you know, we, obviously we get the big names that at least are in Australia because certainly it might be a bit of a challenge for guys like LXT Popper and, and um, you know, Bernard Tomic and Alex I coming back from overseas. But at least, you know, if we if we got, uh, like, the juniors and things like that, um, and even the lower-ranked players as it is, we'd, we'd um, you know certainly be able to, uh, you know, get their names out into the public arena and Australians can actually find out a bit more about the, the depth of talent that we do have. So this is a really interesting talking point, isn't it?
3: And... So we know we have the Australian Pro Tour. It's been going for some time, effectively, you know, what, September to April every year. You know, the prize money isn't all that flash, but it's a chance for our young Australian players to earn some rankings points and actually get their careers underway. But obviously it's not drawing the high calibre of players, you know, wherever it goes from Cairns to Darwin to Toowoomba to Perth, parts of Adelaide to Relgan, Canberra down um, they're not getting, you know, massive crowds, there's no real TV coverage. uh, Yes, there's, you know, the streaming of those events, but there's no commentary. So how do you make that into a product that can be uh, maybe broadcast worthy? So if you're going to have a beefed-up domestic scene, I suppose how we just started the discussion, and and Grothy's the one who obviously brought it up, because we look at golf and we go, okay, it's – So similar but so different. You know, the four majors are the same but all the different tours. So an Australasian tour here is a chance for all our golfers to actually start their career without having to uh, crisscross all over the globe with all the the cost that goes with that. So it gives them a chance to maybe put a kitty of money together and if you're good enough, the cream will rise to the top and golfers, if they can win Australian pro uh, Australasian events, and then get into sanctioned events in Asia and, and Europe and, and and start their journey. But they've actually maybe got some money in the kitty and they're, they're better funded. Whereas our young Australian tennis players, I mean, over the years, I remember some, you know, a James Duckworth. Uh, he, he was going on the road very early, wasn't he? Because he wanted to play on clay. So here he is going to Europe and South America. He didn't really see any benefit of playing the Australian Pro Tour. Um, so it's a difficult one. I mean, obviously it's... Is going to, is the development going to be right here? If you're just playing in Australia, yes, it could maybe help financially. But then, who are you playing against? So, would players from other nationalities come here and and play part of our domestic scene? So our players are getting exposed for the Australian domestic scene to really flourish. Does it need some buy-in from our top end? You know, does it need uh, Barty, Demon, or Kyrgios, whoever else, to to play certain events? Bit like our golfers. I mean. It's, yeah, you know, it's funny because it's hard to get all our golfers to even come back yeah. and play the Australian Open and the Australian PGA because it's so comfortable over in the US. And thinking, what do I need to come back to Australia? So these are all things that are, are really interesting to debate. But the bottom line is, there's just probably not well, clearly not enough players be able to make a living out of tennis. It should be more than what a hundred players, and not even not even. I mean, it was interesting with Leighton's comments a couple of weeks ago, talking about James Duckworth. Now, it's been a long road for Duckworth back from injury. Gets back now to an equal career high ranking, but he's still not really uh, profitable. So um, it's probably, you know, really it's the top maybe 50 to 75 who are genuinely earning a great living from the sport. So plenty for the, the heavyweights to, to think about. They won't want to probably do the same as golf, but surely there's got to be a bit away because you know, there's too many tennis players who are just on, um, you know,
1: on bread and water, basically. I, I suppose this has come up uh, previously in some chats that we've had and, um, you know, the I guess the reality of, of tennis and any sport, really, as as you mentioned, is that the top end of town is what draws in the fans and that's what gets the attention. Do you, do you think that could ever change in, in tennis, getting, uh, you know, sort of raising the profile of, if you like, the the smaller players, because I sort of see that as the way forward potentially if ever the the prize money is really going to sort of even out and take on a more even spread across the board. Well, it's going to have to be an
3: education process, isn't it? I mean, Wally Masua said on our show last week, you know, the world number 110 is a damn good tennis player. They can play. The world number 200 can actually play the game really, really well. You know, even think back to the ATP Cup, and I was like many who... I wasn't quite sure. And I was looking at the team nominations, looking at Moldova, looking at you know Bulgaria outside of uh, Grigor, and you are thinking, are these guys going to attract any interest? Now, once those matches were underway, it just actually showed how small the margins are in tennis, and these guys can actually play. They just don't do it as consistently well. They maybe don't quite have the uh, uh, the, the the mental durability to stay in matches, and you know they start making too many mistakes, and they just can't they can't stay engaged but they they can actually play the game technically pretty well but they just can't advance out of that rung of somewhere between maybe 400 and 800 in the world. But I think a few of those players were certainly put on the map at the ATP Cup that we actually know a bit about them now we can follow their journey. so if you're using that as a bit of a maybe a bit of an analogy then you know we yeah we, we need to. And maybe these events in Australia need to have something that sets them apart. Maybe in terms of format, a point of difference, you know, a little bit of razzmatazz, if you like. Uh, there's a word I've been said for about forty years. Uh, you know, just, just something that's going to actually attract people to actually come and have a look because it's got to have, it's got to have some bums on seats, but it's got to have some sort of TV presence if it's really going to um, capture people's attention. So. Yeah, it, you know, I'm sure the think tank is going on, but no doubt, we, the bottom line is, uh, in a in a sport that's got so many players ranked, more players deserve to make a living. How do we make that happen?
0: Yeah, it's it's and it's confusing because we had Mark Polmans on last week, and he's world number 119. He said he only just made a profit last year, and. You know, when you yep. when you're talking about just making a profit, that you know that's not much to actually go and spend on yourself. So it is concerning. But my opinion is that I think the owner should be more on the ATP, WTA, and ITF to actually bump up the prize money and maybe even take some money away from the top end and put in put an yep. influx into qualifying, into challenges, and into ITFs and even the first rounds of tournaments. Do, do you share that same opinion?
3: Yeah, and and we've discussed that and, you know, maybe this is going to be, you know, if you think what the legacy of Federer and Nadal and Djokovic are going to be, because we may never see an era where three players come through together, um, you know, with those sort of slam records, that their greatest legacy could be to really set up the game long-term so that... Yes, that distribution is more is more even. Yes, you have still got a reward up here, but you know, does the Australian Open winner have to get four million dollars? Can they get two million dollars? Yeah, still a pretty good pay packet for two weeks' work.
0: Yeah, and then that actually the extra two million dollars can go into qualifying yep. and Yeah, it's it's simple.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, if you're trying to come up with a figure, this is what I've been trying to do in all the discussions we've had with guests and. And Sam and I debated how many should make a living. And I, I look at it and I go, well, I reckon, you know, often the, what's been said to me by people in golf is around about the top 300 make a living. Although when we were talking to Brad James from Golf Australia a couple of weeks ago on the show, he was mentioning Matty Griffin who's ranked, I think, somewhere down around 400 in the world, but he's playing mainly just on the Japan tours. This is the difference. I mean, the golf has got some lucrative tours where you could just go and uh, sort of just anchor yourself in a place like Japan where they're fanatical about golf and earn a living that way. He doesn't even play on the US tour. He's, he, he made the cut, I think, at the British Open, um, and that's the only major he's competed in. He was earning half a million dollars a year, and he's only got a trek back and forward from Australia up to Japan, which is not a, you know, a massive journey on the on the global scale. So, yeah, it, yeah, and that that's the difficulty, isn't it? Because the lower levels don't draw that. The, the Challenger Tours and the, although the you know, there's a lot of good Challenger Tour events and good crowds at certain events around the world. But the Futures draw, you know, two cats and a dog to come along and actually uh, have a look. But, yeah, certainly I would say somewhere around, you know, 300, 350. If you get to that level, you're a pretty decent tennis player who should be able to uh, meet your costs and be in front. Beyond that, well, you sort of, you know, have to question. I mean, sometimes you're just not good enough, are you, at your yeah. job? And you go, well, I've got to go do something else. Yeah, You know, there's a guy, actually. I was just thinking, guys, and I want to chat to him. I was going through all the uh, Australian males who have an ATP ranking. There's 63 of them. 27 of them are ranked outside the top 1,000. There's a guy called David Barclay from Sydney. He's 29. And I worked out, I went through every one of his results for the past 15 years. He has earned about $7,000 in prize money in 15 years. So I actually messaged him. We're going to try and get him on. Because I'm just fascinated. I mean, you know... Obviously, he loves the game. There'd be so many in that bracket who are just playing because they love the game. And whether they're, as Dominic Team said, professional or unprofessional, <laughs> you know, and you think, well, okay, they must have other income on the side. That's what I want to explore with someone like that. So there's always going to be that element who just aren't good enough, but who love playing the game and can earn some money from it. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I think, you know, at least 300 to 350 should be able to make a living out of the sport.
0: Yeah, it's it's a more than fair enough point, and you mentioned yeah, with golf playing in the Japan tour, like you'd be ranked four hundred and and getting a decent amount of money. If only if only we knew how to play golf, would be would be set. But um, (laughs) but um, just quickly before we do let you go, BP, um, will there be any tennis in twenty twenty internationally anyway?
3: Well, I don't believe so. But the US Open are clinging on,
0: aren't they? Now
3: I believe that I believe the indoor courts are the Billie Jean King tennis centre now being cleared, sanitised. I think they were feeding meals on Louis Armstrong. So they're sort of slowly sort of sorting that out. It's interesting because initially they said there is absolutely no way we're going to play with our crowds. They changed their tune on that Indian Wells Still a talking point, but it seems very, very remote. They would want to take it out of New York. I think JP Morgan, their major sponsor, has basically told them, we
1: ain't putting any money in if you're going to move it out of New York.
3: So if the US opens Cactus, that spells the rest of the year pretty much done. Uh, The French are desperate to play. They are desperate. I mean, this roof and the whole renovation at Roland Garros is costing them an absolute bomb. So they need to play. To, otherwise they're going to be um, you know, in a bit of strife. But I think it's how, how do you get everyone together? I mean, Grothy said on the show last night that mm, yeah. world team tennis hasn't been officially ruled out. They're trying to get everyone maybe to get to Austin, Texas. But then are they going to let you know Nick Kyrgios played for, was it the Washington Capitals or whatever it was last year? And, hey, is Nick going to be allowed out of the country to get there? And uh, uh, there's too many hurdles. I think. Mean, yeah. too many hurdles for it to happen this year. And maybe we just uh, have a spell and settle up for 2021.
0: Yeah, I think as we said at the start of the show, I think biting the bullet's probably the best the best solution to, to all of it. And I know it's going to cost a lot of money and businesses will suffer, but, you know, nobody's above a global pandemic. So fingers crossed that um, we can get some sort of maybe domestic tennis in, but internationally it just doesn't look like it's going to happen.
3: Well, I think for the smaller tournaments, so, you know, the 250s, they they really are reliant on ticket sales and corporate yeah. hospitality. They don't really benefit much from the TV revenue. Whereas oh. the slams are a bit like you know a bit like the NBA in a sense where they they could make it work and salvage their year financially without any crowds because of the TV deal and the exposure they could get. But um, not not at the lower levels financially for those little tournaments which are sort of privately owned. It just makes no sense and
0: just put the queue in the rack and come back next year. I think so. Well, who knows what we're going to get. We're still not even halfway through the year, although it feels like we've yeah, been through three different years in the same year. It's it's crazy. But um, BP, thank you so much for joining us. And just quickly, before we do let you go, where can we find The First Serve? Is uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Have you got all that?
3: All on social, uh, Val. Our, uh, our website, which you two find lads are doing some uh, some nice uh, contributions to, uh, thefirstserve.com.au. So that's our home. Plenty of news articles, you can go back and listen to all our live shows, all our podcasts uh, separate from our Monday night show and uh, people can listen at their leisure, uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram but we love people tuning in on Monday nights and actually jumping on the airwaves and having a chat to us and uh, as one uh, former radio announcer uh, that I worked with used to say just get it off your chest so uh, there's uh, plenty of people with opinions in tennis and we want to hear it.
0: With the great Kevin Bartlett. Thank you very much, BP. Remember, first serve, it's at 6pm now, isn't it, on uh, Monday nights? For, for, but for the
3: time being, yes. Uh, well, there's no footy on, but when footy comes back, we'll probably shift back into 7 o'clock. Uh, but who knows when the footy, well, I think you know, 11th of June, but... Um yeah, we're there on a Monday.
0: Six o'clock on 1116 SEN. You can follow First Serve at First Serve AU on Twitter. You've got Crunching the Numbers, Aussies Only, the First Serve live mm. show. Plenty to get through. BP, thank you so much for joining us on Breakpoint. It's great to have you back.
3: Well, what a pleasure to be on a fine show that started from humble beginnings and now is a global
0: phenomenon. <laughs> Thanks, heaps, BP. Oh, what a man BP he is! He's, uh, you know, he he gave us a chance. It was our very first guest on the show, and um, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have his on and to hear what he has to say about the world of tennis. He's he's a wonderful tennis broadcaster, and um, he pretty much that he 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 goes he's any tennis media in Australia. He's part of it. He's um he's a fantastic man, a fantastic advocate for the sport here in Australia, isn't he, Joel?
1: Yeah. And uh, you know what, Val? I think it's fair to say that he is the voice of Australian tennis because not only um, does he have the leading tennis show, certainly on radio, in in, uh, Australia, but he also um, is now, well, the head honcho of court announcing at the Australian Open, but also not only the Australian Open, but the build-up events uh, in Brisbane, Sydney, and also the ATP Cup. So Brett Phillips, he, by now, anyone that's watched the Australian Summer of Tennis, he should be, A
0: very, very, very familiar voice. Yes, he definitely should. And um, not only the um, best live tennis radio show in Australia, the best live tennis radio show in the world. It's the only one. So um, I, I I find it unbelievable. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely fantastic. The ATP and WTA couldn't think of another one. So... Uh, it's it's awesome that we have that in our own backyard. So remember, at the first serve AU on Twitter, if you want to follow them, and they're on Instagram and Facebook as well. Please give them a follow. We like we want to give them as much support as we can. But Joel, before we do wrap up, we've got a couple of quick things to get through. And you put this on Twitter during the week. If you could make your yeah. perfect tennis player, male or female, under all of these categories, so it was. It was serve, forehand, backhand, volley, movement, and mindset. Now, we have to pick yeah. one player for each of those categories, but you can't double up. Any player from history... Yeah, no double ups. Any player from history, you pick one and put it in there and who your perfect one is. And we both did this during the week. And um, we'll mm-hmm. we'll start with your, your female player first. Yeah, so...
1: Um... A few of these for mine were were fairly straightforward. The serve, you just cannot go past Serena Williams, um, the absolute greatest of all time, the greatest female player we will ever see, just an unbreakable serve. Um, Forehand, I've gone with Steffi Graf. Backhand, Ash Barty. Uh, Of course, she does have the double-hander, but um, she can throw in a very, very nice slice in there as well. So I've gone with Ash for the backhand, purely for versatility. Uh, Volley, Martina, Navratilova. Movement, Angie Kerber and Mindset, Tristan Ennan.
0: See, I've actually, I've, we've got we've got three of the same players, but none of them are in the same spot. Um, so, oh, actually, I mean, we might have four of the same players, but I've gone for serve Venus Williams. Um, okay. Because I've seen her clock a serve at 200 kilometres an hour, which is genuinely quick. Like, that's... That's faster than what Leighton Hewitt was hitting them towards the end of his career. So um, forehand, I've gone Serena, just because the sheer power of that forehand is immense. Backhand, I've yeah. gone Justine Enna, one of the most perfect backhands I've seen on the female side, and it would be her or Carlos Suarez Navarro that I would take. But I think Enner has yeah, done yeah, more yeah. with her career, so I think you'd have to go with her. Volley, Ash Barty, really sound doubles player, has translated that into the singles court. Movement, Angie Kerber. So I think I agree with you on that one. And mindset, Billie Jean King. I think what she had to fight through, yeah. and the adversity that she had to fight through back in um, in her younger days, um, I think uh, I, I think stands the test of time. They've even made a movie about it, uh, Battle of the Sexes. So mm. um, if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it with Emma Stone and Steve Carell. But they're my um, that's my ideal female tennis player. Joel, your men.
1: Yep. Well said, Val. So to start with, I'll go with the serve and I haven't gone a big power server. I've gone with Roger Federer. And the reason is because whenever Roger's in a tight spot, you can just back his serve um, just to get him out of the spot. Um, just purely for placement. If he wants to go down the T, he'll go down the T. If he wants to go out wide, he'll go out wide and he'll just put on a, a nice little tickler that uh, will get him out of a tough spot. Forehand, um, I think there's really only one man that you can go with and that's Rafael Nadal, best forehand I've, I've ever seen. Um Backhand, same thing. Stan Vabrinka, best backhand I've ever seen. Uh, volley, Stefan Edberg. Um, I think that was um, uh, obviously the uh, he was the inspiration behind the saber as well. So I've gone with uh, with Stefan Edberg. Mm-hmm. Movement, David Ferrer. Um, obviously, we know that he couldn't quite uh, he couldn't quite close it out when he needed to, but he was an absolute warrior and his movement was just phenomenal. He just kept going, had an absolute motor, and mindset. Um, I've gone with John Millman. Um, just because uh, obviously we, we love Johnny um, and uh, he's another one that can uh, that can just keep fighting and he's got a never say die uh, never say die attitude belt.
0: Yep. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now mine I I did this a few months ago and I had served Roger Federer as well, just mainly because it's been so unbelievable for so many years. But I got smashed, absolutely smashed for it. So I've succumbed. Really? I, why? Oh, because they were saying, oh, not Nick Kyrgios or Isner or Karlovich. Or, like, actually, they didn't even mention Karlovich. So, despite all them, I put Karlovich in because he's hit the most aces of all time. Um, but I think Federer's serve is as good as any of them because he's hit, I think, the third most aces of all time and he's not known for some as someone that has a big serve. So, um, I've gone Karlovich yeah, to, to serve.
1: You don't need to serve 240k bombs to be a, a good server.
0: No, you really don't. But I think for Karlovich, the guy's 41 that one shot has single-handedly put him through his whole career. So it's made him a cult hero as well. So Karlovic for serve, forehand, same as you, Nadal. Backhand, same as you, Nadal. Bernard Tomic, very close for the forehand. Actually, no, uh, Vavrinka was my backhand, sorry, not Nadal. God, (laughs) I'm having having a really slow morning today. Um, Okay, so serve, Karlovic, forehand, Nadal. Backhand, Vavrinka. Volley, I've gone Federer um, just because he's so sound at the net and – you mentioned the Sabre, um, you know, he's revitalized using the net and has come in and it's won in his last three slams, his his excessive or more excessive use of the net game than, than his opponent. And he's using it and utilizing yeah. it really well. Movement, I've gone Novak Djokovic, just nobody should be able to contort their body that way like he does. And mindset, I've gone Leighton Hewitt. Um, I think Hewitt was able to get the most out of himself um, when people doubted him. Um, and you know when he was down two sets to love, that was when Leighton Hewitt fights his best. So um, I think he he was ne- he was always he was down a lot, but never out. And um, and he showed that so many times throughout his career, saving match points. So um, Leighton Hewitt is my mindset. So that's mine. Karlovic, Nadal, Vavrinka, not Nadal again. Uh, Federer, Djokovic, <laughs> and Hewitt. So I got through it in the end.
1: Yep. Well said.
0: Should we get to Benoit of the week off? We should. We should now, Benoit. So. This one I think I've taken. Um, I've taken the last. I took last week. So this is your turn. Um. So uh, Benoit one. Benoit pair. Benoit two was Novak Djokovic. Three Donald Trump. Four Ozark. Number five Novak Djokovic. And this is a week where you know they. You know a rebooted version of the show. Basically, just who was the most. So you don't have to have a good week, but you don't have to have a bad week. You can do something mildly stupid, or you can do something great. It's it's <laughs> nothing really. Nothing really is off limits for the Benoit of the week. So um, I'll I'll throw yeah. it over to you, Joel, and um, and we'll reveal who the Benoit of the week is for week six.
1: Yeah. So uh, this this week we've gone we've gone positive, um, and you know she's she's a way that we sometimes. Uh, when we speak about what we're about to speak about, it, it kind of we, we we kind of tend to laugh about it. But this is for a, a genuinely good cause, right? So Jenny Bouchard has gone on social media and she's auctioned off um, essentially a, a, a dinner date to raise money for for charity. Um, and in the end, she raised eighty five thousand US dollars. So. That is a phenomenal effort, and the money that has been raised uh, going or is going to a whole host of uh, essentially of, of food banks in uh, in, in North America. Um, and well, God knows that right now, in in the midst of um, the pandemic, that there's a lot of people struggling and there's a lot of food poverty. So um, it's 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 great work that uh, that genie has done, genuinely from uh, a good place. And on this uh, very topic, we should uh, we should mention Cece Ballas as well. This probably came about. Sort of a week ago, but um, her and I think it was Voss uh, Waters, so clearly a partnership there. But they've, they've, uh, I think they donated about a thousand bottles of water to uh, to medical staff in the US, which uh, is always a great thing. But I think particularly for for a young player like Cece Bellis, and it's easy to forget just how young she is still. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a great effort from her. So um, yeah, Jenny can have uh, our benoir of the week, but uh, CC also gets uh, gets a mention.
0: C-, C-, C gets a small benoir, a half benoit. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> she gets a pina colada.
0: Yeah, there you go. There we go. But um Joel, thank you very much. That that about wraps us up for today. Um thanks for your efforts. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always.
1: Yeah, as always, Val, I'll catch you next week.
0: Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BreakpointPod, Instagram at BreakpointPodcast, Facebook. Give us a like at Breakpoint1 or BreakpointPodcast. You can search there. We're on uh, Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, just search it. We're there. Um, and give us a subscribe, a follow, a listen. We love your we love your feedback, so tweet us anything you like. We're, we're happy to respond. Um, I've been Val Febbo. We'll catch you next week for a bit more Tennis Talk. Can't wait.